0: Hello, this is Teachings in the Air with Sahilthit. Today's podcast is called Memory Lane. And no memories that get triggered when you go to places or you hear things. I went to my home territory, Statlium territory. On May the 10th, I went to the Statlium gathering at Squailoch. Every year on May the 10th, Statlium people gather to commemorate the signing of the Declaration of the Luluit Tribe at Spences Bridge on May the 10th, 1911, a declaration that states that we had not been in a war or sold or gave away our territory to anyone, basically saying that's ours to use, to occupy. So it is a 112 year anniversary. I was there and I see friends and relatives, uh, leadership of the day. And I asked myself, where, where are we now after 112 years? You know, I, I pondered on that and I said to myself, well, Sahil that the most important thing is that the Statlium people know the truth about the territory, that we know that that's where our people hunted and gathered for thousands of years. So that's where I was on May the 10th, Squailach, beautiful marble canyon where they had the gathering. Good work by the Squailach people. But my memory lane triggered or kicked in on May the 11th I stayed in the town of Lulwit with the crew in this hotel. And of course, I, I see where I walked and played and worked in the small town called Lulwit, which means in our dialect, Wild Onions. Anyway, I woke up as usual, 4.30 in the morning in this little hotel room. And I started writing. It's when I write, usually is early in the morning. Or if not early in the morning, one of my habits is to go to Starbucks <laughs> <laughs> to write. Anyway, I was writing in this little hotel room. And of course, I started to feel, hey, I'd like to have a cup of coffee and maybe something to eat. So I got up and uh, went out onto the streets of Lulwet and walked the town. And all the restaurants I come across, they're all closed, and they weren't going to open till seven. So I walked down to the train station, you know, back uptown. Bought myself a cup of coffee at a Esso gas station. And I remembered. That's where the Royal Cafe used to be, a Chinese restaurant, and that was my first memory of the town of Lulwet. Coming on the gas car. The way we get to town was what they call the gas car, you know. It was um, it could carry cars and passengers. A small little transportation system on the railroad called the Pacific Great Eastern Railroad. I remember coming to town. My granny would say, sat at at Tahem. And she'd say it. She'd have a sparkle in her eye. She'd be excited about going to town. And I got that excitement too. And that's the first place my brother and my cousin went into the Royal Cafe. And it's the first hamburger deluxe I had. (laughs) And the owner says, okay, hamburger dealer. He was a, a Chinese man. So that's one of my first memories of the town of Luluit. You know, my memory goes on. My next memory was coming back from the residential school on a bus. Oh excited to come home to be home to have good food to be with my family you know and it was a it was a big event for me it was excitement and i remember as we're coming to the train station cuz we're going to catch a train there to go home to my community and i i see friends and relatives in the streets of Lulawit. And um, some of the adults were quite intoxicated on alcohol. Staggering and disheveled. I could feel a bit of my energy go down. A feeling of shame. And uh, People come up to you and they're happy to see you, but they smell of alcohol, you know, and it's not a good space. You know, I was 13 then, at that memory. And I remember getting on a train, and one of the adults, the train was moving, jumped off the train. I can only, we're thinking it's a suicide attempt. He was a Second World War vet and probably had PTSD. Anyway, I was watching this, what people would call partying or using alcohol, and I'd say that's never going to happen to me. I'm never going to be an alcoholic. You know, I'm not going to be a drunk. You know, I'm not going to drink cheap wine drink in the jungle. And I said, that's never going to happen to me. And I, you know, would go back to the residential school. And, it, you know, it was, it's sort of weird. I don't have any other memories of coming home after that year of I guess feeling down and out. When I was at 13, that summer, following summer, I started to drink alcohol with my cousins. And uh, I was thinking about that as I was thinking about this podcast. And my, my number in residential school was 13. You know, so after I left there, of course, I I hit the bottle and I started doing drugs, you know, and I, I crashed and burned. And, uh, you know, the one of my next memories is I walked by the old police station in uh, Lulowet, and uh, I remember starting that day I come to town on a train, and I see friends, and we end up in the jungle, sagebrush hotel, they called it. We're drinking cheap wine and whiskey. And I passed out, and I woke up, and I was all by myself in the jungle. So I got up, and I went to the first Indian bar, they call it. And there I see friends and relatives, and I get to be drinking again. And I remember I asked for to borrow money because I was hungry and I wanted to eat. And I blacked out and they said that I ate and I was drinking and I had a nice cowboy hat on and I walked out the door and I put it in somebody's head. And I said, here's a gift for you. And they said I walked out the door and nobody seen me after. But what happened as I went into the alley there and passed out in the alley? Luckily, the police found me, RCMP. They took me to the drunk tank in um, the jail. I woke up in the drunk, drunk tank. I, I I got frightened. said, oh, what did I do? Because I had no memory. What happened? Anyway, early in the morning, police officer comes and opens the cell door. All right, come on, we're letting you go. They weren't gonna charge me with anything. I said, oh, okay. And they give me my shoes and my belt and my wallet. I said, "Where's my glasses?" And they said, "Oh, you didn't have any on when we picked you up." I said, "Where did you pick me up?" And you said, they said you were passed out in the alley between the Lulu Hotel, that's where actually where I was staying too this year when I went back and the memories kicked in. That's where I think it started to happen, this memory lane. He said, oh, yeah, you were passed out in the alley, the police officer says. So they let me out the door, and I walked over to the hotel. Walked up the alley, and I looked right beside the wall. There's my glasses. Oh, I was happy because I'm lucky. They didn't break or somebody take them. So I was becoming what I said I would not become. It would never happen to me. And that lifestyle carried on till I was uh, 27 years of age. And I, like people with addictions, I became sick and tired of being sick and tired, and I come to. And part of it was I got introduced to the spiritual path, indigenous spiritual path, which I'd always, or not always, but I, I was interested in that. I was curious about how how we used to live. My uncles would tell me about the calls the sweat lodge. Anyway, we were supporting um, our community around fishing. One of our communities, Lilloet, they were doing a road blockade about fishing rights. So I was working for the band and with summer students, so I took them to the blockade. And we were met by the security there. They're indigenous, guys with long hair, you know. They'd have different uh, beads and things on, you know, and they were cultural. And they stopped the truck, I had a crew cab with my crew in there, high school students. And he says, you have any weapons? Do you have any alcohol or drugs? I say, no. And he says, well, you all get out. So we all got out, and they checked the truck through our camping gear and everything. And they then finally, okay, go on. You told us where to go, where the gathering is, and we drove down there and set up camp. And they had a sweat lodge there, a big sweat lodge. And this Cree man, healer, medicine person from Alberta, was hosting the ceremony. Oh, I wanted that. So I went to that ceremony. And that man was so kind, you know, and he thanked us for being there. I remember we're sitting in there. It was hot and it was dark. And he says, "You relax now. I'm glad that you're here. And for many of you, it's your first time in ceremony. Don't worry, you can do nothing wrong here." He says, "I'll be praying in my language. I have an interpreter here. He'll let you know what I'm saying so you understand." So he's putting medicine on the rock. Grandfathers, he called them, the rocks, the red hut. Oh, this wonderful smell comes through the air. It's medicine. And he sings and he prays. And, you know, there's four sessions in a sweat ceremony. That means they open the door four times and get more rocks into the sweat lodge, unless they have a bear sweat where they take them in all at once. I believe this one was a bear sweat. put the medicine on there. But I remember it. One of the rounds, he was praying. And he was weeping. And the an interpreter says he's praying for his grandchildren. He's worried about his grandchildren. I was sitting there, and I could hear him, and I was listening. And I said, I want what this man has. So that was my opening the door to a spiritual path, a spiritual way of life, of taking care of my spirit. It was a sweat lodge, it a blockade, it activism. So I was coming, too. Then, of course, you know, we go home after a while and uh, back to my community, and there's no sweat lodge there or man or woman running any, so I turned to the next thing because I, I I was coming, too, now. I was waking up. So I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I remember i go there and, I, you know, people introduce themselves. Hello, my name is so-and-so. I'm an alcoholic. They'd come to me and I'd say, oh, Hello, my name is Jerry and I'm here to support you all. You know, I was in denial. Oh, glad you're here. Keep coming back. They'd say that's one of the AA things. Keep coming back. So I kept going back and I remember that time the first time in my life, I disclosed, I acknowledged, I confessed. I said, hello, my name is Jerry and I'm an alcoholic. And it was such a wonderful feeling of, uh, you know, just like a release of, a, like something was held down and it sprung free that I am an alcoholic that I have problems with alcohol. My life is unmanageable because of alcohol. So that's, I come to with that. And then I built my own sweat lodge and started using sweat and using medicines, making teas, you know, and doing hand drum music. And then I, then I was working in the town of Lulwit after I left my own community. And I was working for the alcohol and drug program for the Lolo District Indian Council for five communities. So there I am, one of the, oh, we all know each other in Stadlium territory. Mm -hmm. Our age group anyway, so. There's one guy there. He says, "Yeah, let's start a powwow." I didn't know what powwow was, but he had that. He had a drum, a floor drum, and he started teaching us how to sing. And I remember that feeling of singing with the group, because an important part of fighting addictions is to join a group. Don't do it on your own. Find a group, whether it's AA or a cultural group or something where they don't drink. So this is one. And I would build a sweat, and we'd have sweat, or we'd go to someone's sweat, you know, and it was good, and we'd eat meals together, and we started traveling together, you know, and singing together. So that became my strength then. And I was working for the people. And I also, around those times, started getting into politics. I became chief from my community, you know, and... You know, eventually, I worked for a tribal council. In 1990, the Oka, they call it the Oka crisis. And crisis means turning point. Uh, people from Ghana, Statagi. They're going to build a golf course on their graveyard. So they stopped it. So they put up blockades and started happening in uh, Quebec. So we put up a road blockade in support of the people back east one of our chiefs, great man. He said, I just can't sit by anymore because he's seen them burning indigenous people, effigies of indigenous people, hanging them and burning them. He says, after I seen that, Jerry, he says, we got to do something. I said, okay, I'm with you. So we uh, blockaded the road. He blockaded by himself first, all by himself, went to jail and me and the other chief went to liberate him and we got him out and then we set up another one right away on the road in a different community. And uh, we moved from that community road to the railroad near on, on my community. Because on the road, the people were turning against us, the citizens, the Canadian citizens, because logging trucks were stopped, you know, food trucks, you know, bringing in groceries for the stores in Lulawit, you know, everything coming into Lulawit is stopped. So we realized we're not against the people. We want the government to recognize us, to acknowledge our title of our lands, our territory. So... We moved to the railroad because it's a provincial corporation, you know, uh... and that's where we end up, and that's where we feel empowered, proud to be Stedlium, because we're standing up for ourselves. Then that you know eventually that um, stopped. And we all got arrested, packed us off of tracks, and while that was going on, it was escalating back east. You know, and the army moved in on their blockades, and um, we had people over there. So the chiefs I was working with said, "Let's go get our people." So we traveled back east. So we are activists for change, and it was well planned, you know. And we tell the people: you don't talk to media. There's only two people talk to media. There's two chiefs. Those are the only ones. And uh, we don't swear. We don't drink. We don't do drugs. We don't give them excuse to be mean to us. And they, they, And we had meetings and they said, when they come to arrest us, if they do, we'll just lay down on the tracks and that's what we done. I remember that day they came in with buses, with cages in them, and they filled up those buses. They packed everybody off the tracks. Me and the two chiefs went to jail. We said, we're not going to, uh, They said, if you sign a paper that you won't do this again, we'll let you free. We won't charge you. He said, no. And then they said to come in with a fingerprint kit, and they said, we're going to fingerprint you. And one of the chiefs says, no, we're not criminals. Why are you going to fingerprint us? We're not criminals. You know, so They left. the people eventually liberated us they surrounded the jail and they let us out as after that we went to montreal so that was a memory lane for that town of lalouette as i walked the streets of lalouette I remembered that. I was proud of all those people that stood up for our rights. We all become one. We're all one. People from Penticton come and support us. There are three statlium communities. And we were doing ceremony at the same time can say we're spiritually governed and spiritually guided. So that memory was the last memory I had that morning, walking the streets of Luluit. I walk by the tribal council office. And me and two of the chiefs are sending out faxes all over B.C., no cell phones those days, you know, we're sending out faxes for support. And there are people who want, stepping forward to support us in what we're doing Canadians and Indigenous, letting us know they're with us. So after that, I. Uh, I leave the territory and I start working for other organizations still in addictions and then cultural work and cultural advisor at uh, British Columbia Institute of Technology working for a residential school survivors society. Different organizations and I consulted to. It's there I started to see that our, our biggest losses were, number one, was identity. How to be indigenous 24-7. Loss of identity and loss of family structure. We became all trauma victims. And when you're a victim, you live with anger. fear or depression because you've been wounded like when when we're angry somebody hurt us and we haven't dealt with it we haven't let it go and we carry it and then we get angrier it's just like a seed growing inside of me when I was angry and of course I'd have depression at my lot in life why me? and I have fear in my life, anxiety. That's not a good way to live. It seemed like it is a life without support or help. How where do I go for help, for anger, for depression, for anxiety? And I, you know, there are people that would go and they get medication from the doctor, tranquilizers and stuff. I didn't go that route, I don't know why. Maybe no one told me. I don't know. So I started to be aware of um 'cause Because I, you know, I became a pre- um, working for the people. So I started working addictions programs. And I could see and hear and feel the serious mental health problems that were happening with our people all over Canada. You know, the violence addictions suicide the poverty all of those things that we know today you know overrepresentation in prisons and child apprehensions all of that is serious and there's no help the the therapeutic model was ineffective and it's costly so there was an or a total lack of funding to address the needs of the people, of the families, of the community. And the programs we eventually had were run by non-Indigenous staff because of funding guidelines. You have to have um, alphabets behind your name to get that job. Of course, there's bias and racism. And a lot of the help was urban-centered. So if you want to get professional help, you have to go to Kamloops or Vancouver or City Center. So there's a need at that time and still today for culturally relevant services, services that our people feel comfortable with and understand. Some people say, why do you want to? culturally relevant services, well, because there's unnecessary pain and suffering happening right now. There's escalation of violence, suicide, addictions in our communities and our families. And the frightening thing is starting to be children, you know, that are being harmed or harming themselves. You know, there's that therapeutic model is expensive. I think uh, maybe, I don't know, but maybe the lowest rate for a professional clinician psychologist is $225 an hour today to get that kind of help. You know, and we have so many that need help. So there's accessibility problems, the costs and waiting lists, and plus even the transportation for isolated community members to get to an urban center where the counselors are. That's why I say we need to find a way to help the people. So I hear now I read the paper, newspaper every day, and I see hear of community leaders declaring a state of emergency because of the mental health problems in their community. They're calling for help because of the addictions and the suicide and the violence that's happening in their community. And we all know the cause—the historical trauma we went through the, what I call the you know the R's that traumatized us, that wounded us, and had never been treated. Racism, religion, the reservation lifestyle, residential school, RCMP, you know, removal, that's a 60 scoop. All of those have taken a toll on the people. You know, until this day. You know, and myself, in my own mind, I don't have any reviews to back it up or anything, but my conclusion is that 25% of our people are in trouble with mental health issues. That's a serious number. And there's no service for them or no... Service that they feel comfortable with so in a way it's a wasted resource failure and outcomes overrepresentation and illness, you know diabetes the sicknesses that are preventable suicide, poverty, violence. so the impact has been. You know, life has become hateful for some of our people. Their poverty, their dysfunction in the family, in the community. Lack of access to treatment that they feel comfortable with. We have teenagers today overdosing from fentanyl. Latest case I heard was a 14 year old girl smoking marijuana, at least with fentanyl, killed her. So that's the impact. And uh, you know, the, the importance of having a good family structure and a good community structure is critical, healthy. I've said in conferences and meetings, we have unhealthy people today trying to help unhealthy people. We must stop that. When I think of my mother and I'm talking about the old way of life in Clackman, they say, our way of life. And that way they were all one. My mother says, In September, they would all go up the mountain to pick blueberries together, the whole community, because they're going to pick berries for the whole winter, and they'd be drying them while the men are hunting. and The men would be drying the deer meat, and they would be up there working together, communal food gathering for the winter. And I remember my mother telling me, too, that if there was someone in serious trouble lost. They'd do their best to help that person, that individual, and if they couldn't, they'd call the the healer in to work with that problem. That's culturally relevant service. You know, for us to work together. You know, being indigenous, 24-7 is the way to go. Culture is healing. The importance of having healthy relationships. In our way of life, we were generous, we were kind, we were respectful to our family and to our non-family members so we'd have social cohesion. Social means being friendly or friend and cohesion, being tied together. So we worked at that. We become one. Our language informed us that we're all one. Oh, I just hear the elders, oh, and wa, and nook What they say? how are you doing, my friends and relatives? If you're not my relative, you're my friend. You know, this um, shown by respect we showed to, not only to ourselves, but to one another. It was creating social cohesion. Not a Hatfield-McCoy's kind of lifestyle. People were taught Youngsters were taught and said these direct words, you do not bring shame to your name or to your family. You act respectfully. You be dignified and honorable. If anyone brought shame to that family or that clan, they would work to cover that shame, to fix it. And I think of that way of life as, what a beautiful way of life. You know, they would, um, let's say someone in my family was disrespectful and done violent harm. The family would do whatever was required to cover that shame. In my mind, it's like they would do work until both parties were satisfied. And it was never to be spoken of again because it's been fixed. Restitution happened. Apologies happened. Healers were brought in to help both sides of the, the, both families. Prevention is the best medicine. I know that. Children were taught how to respect themselves, and when they respect themselves, they can respect others to respect everything that kept them alive. No wasting food. You only take what you need. And if you have more salmon that you need, then you give away the rest. Go give it to that elder that lives down there that doesn't have a fish or a person for it with them. When people are working, doing something, step in to help. Don't wait to be asked. Go help. Because when you do that, they'll remember and when we need help, they'll come and help us. And if they see you, this is part of the prevention. They see that you're angry. And it's easy when we're angry. You can see it in our eyes. We walk with a tight jaw. Maybe we have fists in our hands. Our hands become Fists. Ah, uh, they tell you, free yourself, put it down. You're not, being good. You're not good for anybody being angry all the time. Free yourself. Same with sadness or depression. I remember being depressed. You know, your head goes down and you don't participate. You isolate yourself. You just don't care anymore. Again, a message, put it down, free yourself. Find a way. Same as fear. (laughs) I remember. I'd be afraid to be part of something because I'm uh, thinking I'm a failure. I can't do that. No, just go do your best. Doesn't matter if you make a mistake. Just do your best. (laughs) Relationships are important to our survival and our success in life. Very important. So, to work at developing relationships takes communication, and that means listening and then speaking. Or doing uh, no talk, or nonverbal, noisy listening. I remember the elders, oh, somebody would be talking, they'd have an explanation, And that means everybody knows they're listening. No side talk when somebody's speaking. Just the highest form of respect is to listen. No side talk. I see that today, it's so easy. Even when we're in Zoom because of the pandemic, everybody got onto Zoom. When I'm on there, I see chat box lighting up and people while well, somebody's talking. And I say, that's, uh, that's not indigenous. But that's the way it is, that's the way it unfolded. So I, I don't say anything, that's just the way it is. So we're all one, let's not forget that. We're all one. And there's a way out of our conundrum. But then it forced me to look at myself, to look at the people. What are we going to do to fix our problems? It's our responsibility to help our relatives, our friends that are struggling with mental health issues. That's the big teaching I got from the Eastern Gate of Turtle Island, Labrador, from the Eno elders. I'm just so grateful for that blessing, that teaching. Because now it got me to be solution-focused not complaining about the government and the church, but saying, okay, what can we do? What can we do about this grief and loss? What can we do about suicide, about overdoses, about broken families? What can we do? That's what I think about today. You know, we all need to go there You know, to be indigenous 24-7. To be careful and sincere with our words. You know, I was told by elders, you quit being angry at those people. You're shortening their life. I said, whoa. And uh, I remember one auntie was saying, oh, gee, she was just so worried. She says, we're running out of time. She says, I listen to how they talk to each other. They're swearing at each other. And she said, they don't know that their tongue can be like a knife. It cuts the soul of those people and hurts them. The power of words. I was told that by an elder when I started working for a residential school society. And he says, you be careful and sincere with your words Because your words can be like the bullet leaving the end of a gun. That words can actually hurt people so much that they don't want to be here. But also those words can be very encouraging and healing. You know, and we have that chance to do that every day to support in shnuk our friends and relatives. You know, and I think of those teachings. I said, yes, we must spread these teachings across the land. Teach people. First off, about respect, respect yourself. Be careful what you put in that body, what you put in that mind. Love yourself so you can love others. Because there is someone watching us. It's the children, and children are copycats, so we have to be careful and sincere how we talk to them and talk to each other because they're going to become our echo, our reflection of how we lived, how we live today. So that's, that's a big reason for us to look at ourselves. All meaningful change for Jerry happened inside of Jerry. I was influenced by many elders and cultural teachings, but it, when it clicked in, it was Jerry clicking in. I'm an alcoholic. I got problems. I need help for my mind, my body, my spirit. It happened inside. So all meaningful change comes from inside. Every human being, every organization, every family comes from inside. People from outside could tell them and remind them and be shame them and you know do all that stuff. But that change must come from within. They must see and hear in a way that it makes sense. People would tell me I'm an alcoholic and I was uh, practicing alcoholic. Ah, no, 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 I'm not an alcoholic. Those people down in Skid Road, those are alcoholics. Denial. You know, my life was becoming unmanageable. I was suffering, and because of my suffering, my friends and relatives suffered too. You know, that's uh, we make that commitment. I'm gonna stop suffering. Our relatives will stop suffering, and our friends, when they watch us suffer, because we're not suffering now. We're doing our best, we're helping. You know, the, when, I, when I think of um, medicine, to use, like I use medicines. I burn sage, wheatgrass, fungus, juniper, cedar, lavender. I burn these medicines and it It helps me. I sing songs and it helps me. You know, I go to ceremony and it helps me. But I, I discovered how to get rid of stress out of my body. And that's when you experience joy when you have this real joy your face and eyes light up you know every bit of stress leaves your body you left my body when i have joy so look for ways to have joy in life you know set goals for yourself when you accomplish them you got joy I've watched people graduate from university and college, and I could see the joy in them when they're walking across the stage. You know, I've done it, I've done it, i done it. And laughter, it's good medicine too. Takes the stress out of your body and your mind too. So, we're lucky as indigenous people. That's one of the things we've maintained is our laughter. Yeah, we all know it. We'll be all suffering about something and somebody will do something and have us all laughing, breaking up laughing. You know, those are such wonderful gifts, those people that can make me laugh. <laughs> One of the things I come to enjoy is um, I watch people. and uh, I was at the bank the other day and these people knew each other, obviously, because they're having a wonderful conversation there, and I'm waiting in line, and one of the, the tiller says something, and the customer is laughing, and one of those people that slaps the knee when they're laughing. I just love to see that. <laughs> and slap the knee, their whole body is into this enjoyment of laughter. So kindness, laughter, and joy are medicine, too. You bring joy to other people, and stress leaves their body. You bring laughter to them, and life is easier to live. And let them know you're committed to them, that you got their back, then they'll have your back. So that's uh, medicine. And, you know, like I told you, the relatives and friends would do everything they can to help. And uh, like my elder says, you go to them when they're suffering and you let them know I'm here to give you a hug if you need one. I'm here to listen if you need to talk. If none of those, I'm here anyway, and I'll sit with you in silence. And I've used that teaching and it works, you know. And usually within 10 minutes of silence, they're talking. And we give a hug after. That's medicine. But there are times we need the specialist to come in, a trained specialist. Our shkunams were trained, our healers were trained. And now we can also have counselors that are trained, and my plea is that they be culturally relevant, that they understand the importance of connecting with the person you're helping. Otherwise, you're wasting their time and your time. So we use cultural ways to connect. Sometimes it's having a meal together. Sometimes, like I connected with this one young man, gas sniffing problem and I have tea with him, and he comes to visit me. And I ask him, you know how to play double solitary? No, I don't. I said, I'm going to teach you. So we're having tea, playing cards. And I tell him about my mom and dad, and my family, and stuff, you know. It's what usually indigenous people do. And so he talks about his mom, you know, Then he says, I don't know my dad. I wish I knew my dad. My mom won't tell me. And I thought, this this could be the crux of his problem. This could be it. So I don't push. I say, oh, good, thank you for sharing. And we play cards and have tea. And he comes, you know, regularly. And we play cards and we talk. We connect. I remember when I was leaving that community, I was there for a month, and he comes in the last meeting we're having, and he has a gift for me, a little carved, carving out of stone. I remember I gave it away. I wished I hadn't. It was so nice. He says, I want to be an artist. I said, you can go to school to be an artist. I said, they have schools, even indigenous art. You just have to find it. And he says, oh. And we're talking, and he says, you know what this been like for me, elder? And I says, No. He says, it's like uh, dances with wolves, uh, elder in the teepee and they're talking to him, and that's the way I feel <laughs> I'm with you. I says, Oh, okay. <laughs> he had something to it. he had a memory. And he had a role model as cultural relevance. Talk to an elder. So anyway, so that's what this memory lane has been about. You know, you hear Sahilta talk about crash and burn. You know, I was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And uh was depressing after, you know, after years of drinking. It got to be depressing. But there's always going to be a group that'll help you. Like in this town, there's Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think there's only one indigenous person at that time. And then more and more come. Then we start to drum group. Then we start sweat lodges. And we start to have uh, communities of people working together. That's what we need, is we need to find a community to support us. And we support them. And community doesn't mean family and stuff like that. You know, like Alcoholics Anonymous is a big worldwide community. Sweat Lodge Road is a community in North America. I've had sweats in Labrador ceremonies, in um, Ottawa, Alberta, all over BC, down in the United States and California, and South Dakota, I've been to ceremony. There's a family, a community of Sweat Lodge people, of people that fast, that do ceremony and ritual. Join a community find a community, a group to be with, don't do it alone. I'm not saying it can't be done. People have done it alone, but I'll let you know. It's a bit easier with a community because you bounce ideas off each other. You help each other. So, (laughs) I remember the good memory, Elaine, too. What saved me. What helped me. And it's my own backyard. Take care of that body. You go running every morning at daybreak. Go to the lake, go to the river. Go under four times in that cold water and try and spend more and more time there so you'll have it. And I didn't know it was going to strengthen my willpower to say no to alcohol because that's what it was doing. That running and that bathing and that sweat lodging. It was all strengthening my spirit. I still had communication problems, especially with loved ones. But I was on the road, the healing road. I was letting the healing begin. And that's a good feeling. And I still got it. If I get lost in anger or depression or fear. I'll talk to somebody or I'll have a ceremony. I'll meditate on it and I'll let it go what's bothering me. So we're all one. You know, we're all one, all of us. And because we're one, we can support each other, help each other, be there for each other. So that's my message. And I... So grateful to Statlium for triggering this podcast about Memory Lane, my people. <laughs> it is so good to see them singing and dancing, eating together, being community. So you have a good, good summer, summertime now, and. Um, Take care, drink lots of water, it's too hot, find a way to cool down, keep your core cool down, use sunscreen, use hats when you go out. If the smoke comes, wear those N95 masks, protect yourself, protect your family. But have a good summer. Bye-bye.